Good morning, church. Uh, my name is Isaac, and I have the pleasure of serving as one of the pastors here at Cornerstone. Today, we're going to continue our sermon series on living as a household of God. And today, we're going to be talking about particularly the qualifications of an elder. So would you stand with me as we read the word of God in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to be the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household as well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. He may be seated. Would you join me in prayer? Blessed Lord, you have caused all scriptures to be written for our learning. Would you grant us that we may in such a way hear them, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I have a confession to make. Now, some people think that this is a serious sin. I don't think so. But the confession that I need to make is that I am not a PCAA pastor. Shocking, right? If you're curious, I'm a member, an ordained minister in the KAPC, the Korean American Presbyterian Church. And I do hope to transfer to the PCA soon. But until then, please forgive me. But in all seriousness, uh, the, the, in order to be a pastor, I had to go through a series of examinations. And in the KEPC, we have a General Assembly written exam, which covers all types of topics such as theology, you know, systematics, uh, church history, and all the good stuff. But before you're able to take this exam, I had to write three 25-page papers on other stuff. And so passing this exam signified that you are now allowed to actually go through ordination. And it was kind of like the stamp of approval. So at the presbytery level, you have to take another series of written exams, and which are now less intense, but still kind of intense. And so you have to study up on the discipline in the book of church order of, and worship. But the very last thing that you need to do is to have an interview with the credential committee. Now, looking back... I don't even know what I said during these interviews because it was all done in Korean. And so the pastors were asking me questions and I was trying to answer it in Korean. And then all of a sudden I started getting lectured at. But all of this is to say, I passed this interview by saying this. Nah, nah. Oh, nah. <laughs> nah. And if I was to translate this, it was this. Oh, okay. 
<laughs> okay, uh, okay. But I guess looking back, I wonder if these series of examinations actually weeded out those that were qualified and those that weren't qualified. Now, I'm not trying to show, sh show shade at uh, the KAPC, but I think this is a lot of denominations. Today, Paul shows us a list of qualifications which allows us, the household of God, to know what makes a good elder. Today, by answering these questions, what makes a good elder, I hope to accomplish a few things. The first thing is to help us in how we can pray for the elders of our church. The second is to help us in our future officer nominations, even though we just nominated a few elders and deacons. And the third is to help us to pray for the young men in our congregation. Now, before we go into the qualifications, I think there are a couple of important introductory notes that I need to make on the office of overseer. In verse 1, we see that Paul writes, The saying is trustworthy if anyone aspires to the office of overseer. And we can stop there. You see, this word, the office of overseer, is actually one word in Greek, which uh, you can translate it as bishop. But it's interesting because later in uh, 1 Timothy, in chapter 5, we see that Paul says this in verse 17, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So is Paul speaking to two different groups in the church, in the church of Ephesus? Is an elder separate from being a bishop? Now, the reason why this is important, because the way you interpret these words will change the the, the belief that you have in church government. If you believe the bishop and elder are separate offices, then you would adopt the church government mo model that is close to the Catholic church. On the other hand, if you believe that the bishop and elder are the same office, then you adopt similar to the Presbyterian church. Now, the reason this is important is because the Bible doesn't distinguish bishop, overseer, and elder to be two separate offices. The word elder and bishop are used interchangeably all throughout Scripture in the New Testament, and they refer to basically the overseers of the church. An example of this is Titus 1.5 and 7, which Paul writes, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you, you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. Here we see Paul go back and forth on using overseer and elder, which helps us to understand that even Paul understood overseer and elders to be the same office. So who is he talking about when he talks about overseer and elder? He's talking about those who are men in the congregation that are given the responsibility to shepherd. Paul here is talking about the elders of the church. Now, notice I said elders and not pastors and elders. And I think a lot of times in our minds, we like to separate pastors and elders. But in the Bible, there is no distinguishing of those two offices. There's only elders. You see, they're like two sides of the same coin. And in the PCA, they've uh, distinguished ruling elder and teaching elder. But the distinguishing factor is not in authority, but it's in responsibility, in their function. In other words, this doesn't mean that teaching elders are greater than the ruling elders or vice versa. They're just all elders. 
And what this means for us is that both the ruling elder and teaching elder are given the task to shepherd God's flock. And so an implication for us today is that we don't just need to go to Pastor Andrew or myself to receive counsel, but the role of shepherding is given to all the elders. And what this means is that all elders should know their flock by relating to them personally. They should feed their flock through teaching and preaching of God's word. They should lead their flock by exemplifying holiness and protect their flock by defending sound doctrine. Now that we've established this office of overseer, we can now go into what type of men this office requires. So who is qualified to be an elder? And I'm just going to be consistent from here on out and just say elder to kind of help us. And the reason why I started this way is because you can kind of already feel the burden of uh, what's on the elder's plate. And you would think, who would want this burden? And in verse 1, Paul says this, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Now, notice Paul speaks about how being an elder is a noble task or you can translate this as a good work. And what this means is that being an elder is essentially a work. It's not a fancy title. It's good work to oversee God's people. It's good work to shepherd God's people. Therefore, because it is a good work, it is good for men to seek after it. And I think a lot of times we think desire as this bad thing. We think of it as a sinful thing. Like I know some people when I was younger who really wanted to be an elder of the church and once they didn't get get that position, they left the church and this was a red flag. You see, desire is not all bad, but when you seek after the title and authority more than the work, that's when it becomes bad. Notice that Paul is not saying it's a good thing to desire after authority. Instead, he's saying... It's good to desire the task of shepherding God's people. This is good to have. And the reason for this is because God wants elders who want to do the noble task of shepherding his people. In other words, he wants people who will, will, he will want to shepherd the souls of the people. See, the reality is that being an elder is hard and, and it is a burden sometimes. There are times when you have to make big, stressful decisions that just give you headaches. But at the end of the day, why do the elders do all that they do? It's because they have the desire to shepherd God's people. Which is why we now look to the qualifications. In verse 2, it says, Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Now, notice the word here, must be. It's not should be or can be. It's a must, which means that this shouldn't be taken lightly. And the first thing that we see here in this qualification is the elder's reputation. Here in Paul says that an overseer must be above reproach. To be above reproach means that they are to be without blame, or in other words, to, be, to not be found doing wrong. Now, 
This does not mean that elders are to be perfect people, because that would mean that no one can become an elder ever. Instead, this has to do with the observant behavior. An elder is to live a life uh, in a way that uh, no cause, uh, in a way that gives no cause for others to think badly of him. And this is further explained in verse 7 when Paul writes, Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. So right off the bat, Paul sets this bar pretty high. But now moving from the reputation, the general, he goes now into the more specific. And the specific is that elders must be above reproach, especially in their marriage. They must be a husband of one wife. Now, when people read this, there's a few ways that people interpret this. The first way that people think of this is that Paul is saying that elders should be only married men. So if you're single, that means you're disqualified. Well, this isn't right because then Paul would have been disqualified early on. Some people think that Paul is taking a a stand against polygamy as he writes this. But I don't think this is likely as well because the general consensus of this time was that polygamy was a bad thing. And then others would think uh, that Paul here is interpreting that elders should only have one wife throughout their whole lifetime. But I don't think that's the case either. Instead, what Paul means is that elders are to be faithful to their wife. In other words, the elder is to be a man who is faithful to his wife and the vows that he had made to her on that wedding day. And to be clear, to be a one-woman wife does prohibit prolygamy and homosexuality, but the emphasis here is that they are faithful. Next, we move to the next three traits that focus on the elder's self-mastery. In verse 2, it says, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable. Now, to be sober-minded is to be clear-minded or to be free from dominating influences. And Paul kind of lays this out in verse 3, where the elder must not be a drunkard. Now, to be drunk means to be influenced by substance. In other words, an elder must not be under any influence, but instead be clear to make sound judgments. After all, they are managing the household of God. The last thing you want them to be, to, for them to be mastered, uh, but the last thing you want them f- f- for them to be mastered is by a substance rather than by God. So to be self-controlled is to be in control of oneself. This means that elders are men that are not controlled by their passions or their lust or their idolatries, but by the Spirit of God. It's very similar to being sober-minded. And to be respectable means to be orderly. Again, going back to how others view an elder. The next couple of characteristics that we see is talking about the elder's ministry. In the end of verse 2, it says that elders are to be hospitable, able to teach. Hospitable means to love strangers. Elders are to be joyful hosts that welcome guests to their homes. And the reason for this is because the elder's heart seeks to love on those who uh, he does not yet know. Kent Hughes says this, that elders are not simply to wait for opportunities for hospitality, but they're to pursue them. In other words, they are to welcome, be kind, greet, show love to those who enter into the doors of the church. 
the next part of the elders' ministry is to be able to teach. In Titus, we see that the full meaning of this is seen in verse 9, Titus 1 verse 9, which says this, He must hold firm to the trustworthy word that's taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Now, there's two things that are, are implied here. The first thing is that elders are first students of the Word of God. They are men who love the Word of God and who are saturated with the Word of God. They are to submit under the authority of the Word of God, which is what a student does. And the second implication of this is that they are able to teach. Now, teaching doesn't mean just coming up here and preaching. Teaching can look in different ways, and one way in particular it can look like, which Paul does in the Ephesian church, is spotting false teachings, rebuking, correcting. They protect the purity of the church by being able to correct when wrong doctrine is being taught. Next, we see that um, after the elders' ministry, we see Paul speaks about the elders' temperament. In verse 3, it says, not violent, but gentle not quarrelsome. The the literal translation of to not be violent, actually, is to not be a striker. Elders are not to be quick to anger or quick to fight, but instead we see that elders are to be gentle. They are to abstain from fighting. I remember growing up in Brooklyn, and I remember hearing crazy stories about churches in Queens and all throughout uh, New York City, you know. And I would hear stories about how elders would be literally getting into like fist fights with each other or fighting. And I would think, what in the WWE is going on in church? And the reality is when I saw it at my home church. You see, everyone is, can be easily angered. Everyone can be, fall into anger. But an elder is to keep his cool. He doesn't wear his feelings on his sleeve And he surely doesn't act out on it. Next, Paul talks about the elder's money. In verse 3, he says, not a lover of money. Here, Paul is very explicit in his letters about how being a lover of money is actually a very sinful thing. In verse Timothy 6, 9 through 10 says this, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Here we see that those who love money are those who are tempted and who have wandered off from the truth. Jesus in Matthew 6 verse 24 also says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. In other words, those who love money will only care and live for money. And the principle here is that elders are to be those who don't live and serve money as their masters. They're not to be swayed by money. But this doesn't mean that every elder in the world needs to be poor because those who have no money can actually also live a life that's craving after money. So instead, elders should be ones who only serve the Lord. His only master is the Lord Jesus Christ. 
in verse 4, we now begin to see Paul talks about the elder's family. Now, before in verse 2, Paul writes that an overseer should be the husband of one wife, and we talked about the faithfulness. But in verses 4 to 5, Paul writes more specifically about this family dynamic. He writes, he must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Now, what does this mean? And the basic principle here is that the way you can tell if an elder will be a good shepherd is to actually look at how he shepherds his home. How he manages his house will determine how he will manage the household of God. How he disciples his kids will show how he will disciple those in the church. Now, there's some controversy here. People begin to think, well, what happens when an elder's children are unbelievers? Does that mean that they're disqualified? There's two sides to this, right? One group of people will say, yes, if a man's children fall away from faith, they should be disqualified from being an elder. Another side says, well, Paul is emphasizing the submissiveness of children, not whether or not they believe. So which side is correct? I think Paul has in mind the latter rather than the former. And the reason for this is because Paul's emphasis here in 1 Timothy uh, 3, verse 5, is actually on the elder's managerial skills. You see, to be a good manager of the house doesn't mean that your kids will be perfect. That's impossible. It doesn't mean that all of them will be saved and believe in the gospel, although this is what we hope for. I think we get a good understanding or a good picture of what actually looks like an elder or father should be in verse 5 as Paul uses the verb to care. Now, it's interesting to note that this verb to care is only seen in one other passage in the New Testament. And it's in Luke 10 verses 34 to 35, which reads like this. He went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. For those that don't know where, where this passage is from, this passage is from the parable of the Good Samaritan. You see, the story of the Good Samaritan is a beautiful example of what fathers and elders are to do. To take care of someone requires much sacrifice. It requires compassion, mercy. The Samaritan that day could have just done what all the other people did in the story. They could have walked across and went on his way. Instead, he has compassion. He helps. In the same way, a father who manages his own household well will be one filled with compassion, love, mercy over his children and wife. He is one who will sacrifice and take care of his family. And in the same way, an elder will do the same for all of those God has entrusted to him. The next qualification we see is the elder's maturity. In verse 6, it says, He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. A new Christian is not ready to oversee the church. And although a lot of new believers are filled with zeal and passion, they're not ready to just lead yet. I remember receiving a call to be a youth pastor early on when I was in college. 
I think the church was desperate to want to hire me. Um, I remember church saying, we're going to offer you stipends and gas money. And it really seemed like a nice deal. But I remember sitting down with my pastor and at the time, and he read this verse to me. And immediately I said, I'm mature. But usually when you have to justify that and say that, you're not. And you see the danger here is that new converts are zealous and passionate. And that's good but they're not mature enough to know uh, that they can cause more harm than good. And Paul warns us here is that new converts can be easily puffed up with conceit. As he says, it may become puffed up with conceit and fall to temptation of the devil. You see, although pride is something that all of us may struggle with, new Christians can become prideful because they just don't know any better. And that's the thing about pride. It's sort of like bad breath. Everyone knows you have it except you. Pride is one of the most dangerous traits of an elder. And so as an elder, they shouldn't be a new convert, but rather they should be an experienced one who has weathered the storms of life and remains to be humble. Lastly, we look at the elder's reputation once again. Now, Paul starts off the qualification, if you remember, the first thing as the elder's reputation to be above reproach. But here he closes it up uh, with verse 7 by saying this, Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace into a snare of a devil. You see, to be well thought of means to be a good reputation with those outside the church. What this means is that elders are to be men of integrity, especially to the outside world. An elder must have a good reputation with those who are outside in order to continue the Lord's work of missions and evangelism. You see, how hard would it be for someone to to convince someone of the gospel if that person doesn't like you or has been wronged by you? And the answer is it's quite impossible So an elder must have good reputation with the outside world. Now notice it's not being of the world, but it's having a good reputation with the world. These are the qualifications of the elders. But who can measure up? And I'm I'm hoping that you're starting to feel this tension, this burden of, wow, being an elder is no joke. But when you really think about all these qualifications and all these standards, when you think about it, no one really can do them. Well, not by themselves. They need help. You see, no one by their own power can meet all these requirements because it would be near impossible. Just by reading this list, we begin to say, wow, I can't do this. But then you realize, wow, There are some godly elders that do fit these requirements. How did they get there? You see, Paul doesn't list these qualifications because it's impossible to attain. No, he states it because there were some men in the church that fit the mold. And they fit the mold not because they were good enough. It wasn't because they were smart enough. It wasn't because they had some secret method to doing all these things. It was all because of Jesus Christ. You see, when you look at the elders today, you don't just see how they represent the great shepherd of the church. 
but you also begin to see something else. When, they, when you look at the way they live their life, you begin to actually see the testimony of God's grace. A testimony that says, I'm a sinner in need of grace, but God being rich in mercy have saved and changed them. Elders are a witness of what God can do to a sinful person. These men are able to be above reproach, a husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, and the list goes on and on and on. And all of this is because of God's amazing grace. Grace transforms everything. Grace takes the ugly and makes it beautiful. John Noon, the writer of the great hymn, Amazing Grace, said this toward the end of his life. He said, my memory is near gone, nearly gone, but I, I remember two things, that I'm a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. You see, if it wasn't for Christ, we would all be walking in the desires of our flesh. In other words, we would be deceitful, we would be dead in our trespasses, disobedient, ignorant, and the list will go on and on and on. We deserve God's wrath, but because uh, God was rich in grace, because he chose to save undeserving sinners, he has united us together with Christ. Because of Christ, we're now able to walk in the Spirit. And because we are led by the Spirit, we have the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So how can any man meet all these qualifications? It's only by the grace of God. It's only by God's grace that they have been transformed and renewed. So practically, church, what does this mean for us as a household of God? It means a couple things. Number one, if you're not yet a believer, I want to share with you that the church is not a place of perfect people. In fact, you'll find sinners here, but you'll also find saints. And you'll find elders who have been transformed and are a witness to this transforming, amazing grace. And you too can experience this life-transforming grace if you believe in the Lord Jesus as your Savior. And number two, if you're a member of the church, this calls for us to praise God and pray to God. We praise God because of His grace, His amazing grace that saves a sinner like me, who saves a sinner like you. And so today I hope that all of us can praise God for his amazing grace. But this also calls us to pray. Pray for the elders in our church, that they would live up to these qualifications. And would you pray for the future officers and pray for the young men in our church that they would live to be like these men. At this time, let's take a moment here to respond to this word. And if there's anything that has uh, convicted, let's come to the Lord and respond to him. So let's take a minute to just pray.